This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? Or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork, egg foo young, sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash altitude go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Welcome to Special Sauce, Series C's podcast about food and life. Every week on Special Sauce, we talk to some of the leading lights of American culture, food folks and non-food folks alike. In 1983, Mark Miller, Jeremiah Tower, Alice Waters, Jonathan Waxman, Paul Prudhomme from New Orleans, Larry Forgione from New York City, Jimmy Schmidt and Brad Ogden from the Midwest did a collaborative dinner to show off what was happening in American restaurants at the time. And a lot of the chefs who came to that dinner had never met. Now, that today would be unimaginable. Right. Some of them had not heard of each other until they saw the roster for the dinner. And these were people who, in their own localities, were famous. And they realized that they were part of something big. We are back with Andrew Friedman, author of the brand new book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Great title, dude. Thank you. I think there's a little bit of a misnomer in there, and you may have met it metaphorically, but we'll get to why in a moment. But first of all, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much. It's comprehensive, and you sort of make a reader a fly on the wall of American chef culture, which I think is not easy to do. I mean, how many interviews did you do? A little more than 210. You're like the studs Turkle of chefs. (laughs) I'll take that. (laughs) But I'm not going to wear the hat, though. And these are not 10-minute interviews. Most of them, no. Some of the, many of them were two, three-hour interviews. Wow. Some were even longer. I mean, I have many, I have tens of thousands of pages of transcripts. This is the ultimate sauce reduction. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? I always say I'm a chef writer, not a food writer. It would never occur to me to say that, but yes, that's perfect. <laughs> Tell us how the book came about, right? So you, you have this terrific career, ghostwriting chef's cookbooks. Yeah. You wrote this tennis book. And it's funny what you said about tennis. And now I may be too old to take you on because I, you know, I feel like back when we talked about playing, it would have been close. But now I don't (laughs) think so. But anyway, 
You never know. <laughs> you did the James Blake book, and actually, which is really good. I read it. Thank you. So you've done all this work. Your Tennis Jones is part of your work life. Yeah. Your Chef Jones is yeah. part of your work life. This book is not anything like any of those. No. Well, uh, so how did it come about? Well, I'll start telling you, and if I get too long-winded, you'll tell me yeah. to fast forward. By the way, I just have to quickly say that right after I sold this book, I sold it shortly before uh, the annual Food & Wine Best New Chefs Party, and I went to the party that year. And what and, year was that? Ooh, I sold the book in 12. Got it. And you came up to me across this jam-packed room, and, <laughs> and you said, that is so great, that book. I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> I did. So I'm sorry I kept you waiting six years. It's that was true. six years ago. I'm a little annoyed with you that I'm sorry. Six well, you, you should know. be my publisher. Imagine yeah. if you'd written me checks. <laughs> so I did all these collaborations with chefs, as you said. And then I had sort of an epiphany. In 2009, I wrote a book called Knives at Dawn, which was my first solo nonfiction book. And it was about the Boku's Door competition. This and, competition that, and that had a narrative thread. That was a narrative story. I was very lucky. Daniel Balud and Thomas Keller and Jerome Bocuse, who's Paul's son, who's here in the U.S., uh, let me come be a fly. I was embedded, as I say, with the American team. And I, Tim Hollingsworth, who was the sous chef at the time at the French Laundry, was competing for the U.S. And Timmy uh, was developing the platter he was going to present in the competition. And I was spending tons of time interviewing him and getting to know this guy who I didn't had never met before, watching him figure out what he was going to serve in this competition. And somewhere along that process, I realized, hey, you know, I've been collaborating with people, which I'd always just kind of looked at as like a way to make a living. But I've gotten to know a lot about chefs, you know, and I've gotten to know a lot about this world. And I can really speak to this guy in his own language. And I'm watching him sort of develop in front of me, almost like a Polaroid. And that was sort of a turning point in my, how I thought about my career. And I started thinking, that's when I thought about my blog, which I have, which is about chefs. And I started thinking about myself as what I call a chronicler of chefs, cooks, and kitchen culture. I felt like that was something that fascinated me, that I always had taken for granted, just having been around it for so long, but which most people aren't around, but are interested in. I mean, these are the people who read Tony Bourdain's stuff, right? And I started to see a specialization there for myself. This book in particular came about because there are a couple of books that I personally love. One of them, I used to be in the film business, as I've mentioned. One of them was called Easy Riders, Raging Bulls. Great book. And that is a book by Peter Biskind. It is about the film American film directors of the 70s. It is about how old Hollywood became new Hollywood. It is about how people like George Cukor and Vincent Minnelli and, and Billy way, Wilder gave, gave way, way to George Martin Lucas. Scorsese and Brian De Palma and George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And there is another book called Please Kill Me, which is an oral history of punk rock, also set during this same time frame. Who there, wrote that? Uh, Legs McNeil. Oh, Legs McNeil, yeah. who was the chronicler. Yes, of, correct. He was the Andrew Friedman <laughs> well, of punk rock because he I think was you the might need, Maybe you need to flip that. <laughs> I mean, I think he gets preferential That's, placement in that Andrew McNeil was literally this presence yeah. on the punk rock yeah. scene yeah. 
I was a publicist at Warner Brothers Records. Oh, okay. For the B-52s oh, and wow. the Talking Heads wow. in the seventies. Wow. So like, Fun. I knew those guys. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that book. There's a book called Live from New York, which is an oral history of Saturday Night Live, which was about how comedy changed. These books are all set during the same years as my book. And, you know, this is, again, my revelation that I was not a food writer, but what I call a chef writer. You know, I looked at this time period and I thought, well, where's where's the book about chefs that would go on the shelf with Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and Please Kill Me, and Live from New York. Because all the, this is going to sound like a weird comment, but I, I think it makes sense. Anything I'd ever read, we're sitting here, you have a copy of David Camp's book on, on the table here. United States of Arugula? Yeah. How We Became a Gourmet Nation, right? All the books I feel like that have been written about this era are about the, the transformation of food. And I don't feel like anyone had ever written a book about the transformation and evolution of the chef profession in the United States during these same years, during the same years that music changed, movies changed. So late 60s everything changed. to... Yeah, late yeah. 60s through the 80s, yeah. you know? Um, I feel like the same cultural and societal forces that were swirling around that gave rise to those other things I just talked about drove people into kitchens and changed what they cooked when they got there. I think it's all of a piece. And I just felt like nobody had written that story. I feel like chefs were always sort of um, subsumed into the larger narrative of how food changed, right? But it was never just a book that put the chefs front and center. And even now with the book out there and even with people who've read it, it's still a little bit of a struggle sometimes to convey this. To You know, mm -hmm. people have said to me like, why isn't there more about, like, Joe Baum, who was this big restaurateur? Right, or, who was a or, famous yeah. restaurateur yes. and then consultant who did Windows on the World and the Rainbow of, Room. Form of the and, Twelve Caesars and right. all the, what we would call now, like, concept restaurants. Right. Or, I mean, super important person, but my focus is is American chefs, you right. know? Or how come you don't have more about Jean Bonchet in Chicago? Well, because my book's about American chefs. Who had like, the restaurant in Wheeling. Le Francais, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, these are all people I revere, but to you know, I think it's it's all been so intertwined for so long. Even with the book now in front of us, I still sometimes have to almost insist on what it's about. Yeah, you know, and well, fight for that a little bit. I will tell you though, the Wall Street Journal uh, reviewed the book a couple week couple weekends ago, and it was a wonderful review. I loved it. Um, Eugenia Bone wrote the review, who I've never met, and in the review she said. You know, it must be said, I don't know if she used the term food porn, but, you know, there's no very little food description in the book. If you're looking for, you know, chewy something, whatever, <laughs> you need to look elsewhere. And when I read that, I don't know how she meant it, but when I read that line, I thought, yes, mission yeah. accomplished. Because yeah. I, I didn't want, there is food in the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, enough to give a sense, I mean, these people are cooks. Yeah. I give a sense of it, but no, I don't go on about dishes. I don't lovingly describe them. I don't get into taste description. I yeah. really don't. I, I describe them as the product of these people's vision and creativity. Yes. But I'm much more concerned with the people than I am with what was on the plate. It's true. Now that you're talking about it, it's like the book isn't about sharing food enthusiasm. You know, no. so much of my writing is about sharing yeah. my enthusiasm and telling the stories of the people that make food that I'm enthusiastic sure. about. Yeah. And you have a very different perspective. The other thing that makes the book so interesting to me Thelonious Monk used to say, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Yeah. 
teasing out the story of the American chef culture. Yes. I didn't realize it until you just said it, what that meant for the narrative, but it really gave you a super tight window, which is helpful as a writer. You well, know, it's, it's, you know, you asked about how many interviews I did. I mean, I had to do something to whittle this thing down. It was really hard. Yeah. You know, and there's chefs who, um, you know, the example I give in the author's note, you know, uh, most people would point to Andre Saltner and Lutece as sort of the pinnacle of French dining, which basically meant the pinnacle of dining right, in, in the United States, right, at that time. Lutece, yeah. we should say, for people who didn't know, yeah. in the, what, 50s, 60s, and 70s? Yeah, well, and be, and even later way, than that, yeah. yeah. And Saltner's the nicest guy you will ever meet in your life, but did not hire very many Americans. He would tell you it's because he had a very small kitchen and people stayed there forever, whatever the reasons were. Then there was a guy named Jean-Jacques Rachou, who's much less well-remembered, had a restaurant called Le Cote Basque. Right, and many Americans came well, through. So Todd English used to talk about Todd English came through there. Rick Moonen came through there. Charlie Palmer came through there. It goes on and on. And so in this book, Rachou is a much bigger character than Saltner, Because right? it serves your narrative. Because it's what he, he would hire Americans at a time when most French... Not yeah. only one hire Americans, but laughed at them, thought they had no culinary foundation, thought their palates were lame. Uh, if they did hire them, they treated them like garbage. And and Rashid did not do any of that. He was really great to them, and those people still love him today. Yes. So that is why. I point to that example as what this book is really about. And and that's why Rashid gets more real estate, more ink, than Saltner. It's yeah. not out of disrespect to sure. Andre, who I love. It's because in this story... Rashu was really freaking important. Yeah. You know? So your book starts with chef culture in America in the 70s, yeah. the late 60s. Yeah. What was chef culture like before then? I mean, you, you talk about it. I was fascinated the way you delineated chef culture pre-1968. Well, know? so in this country, first of all, I mean, any chef that was accorded any respect in this country was French, or at least European. Those were the people who were sort of known, these people who came over. There's a whole history we don't need to get into, but a lot of them came over for the World's Fair in 1939 uh, when it was time to go home. Whoops, France was occupied. Right. They stayed here and they started opening these legendary restaurants. Um, if you were an American kid, so chef culture from the American standpoint, it was all but unheard of to be an American kid from a quote-unquote good home and turn to your parents one day and say, hey, you know what, guys? I think I might want to be a cook, you know? <laughs> and there's all, you talked about how many interviews I did. In the overwhelming uh, number of them, Americans who told me about that moment, the reaction of their parents was concern, fear, anger, horror. They thought their kids were throwing their lives away. They thought they were entering basically a blue-collar profession, very often having just paid for college or in many cases law school um, or something like that. Um, the, uh, Mario Batali has this great line in the book where he says, you know, cooking was not uh, respected. It was the first thing you did after the army and the last thing you did before you went to prison. You know? <laughs> right. And that was, and, and Jan Birnbaum, who's a pretty well-known chef from the Bay Area, said, you know, you would never... Uh, 
be seen in your uniform, you know, going to work. You would wear your civilian clothes. You know, like what could be cooler now than when you're in the streets of New York City or San Francisco and you see a chef. I remember years ago testing recipes with Tom Valenti when he had West Restaurant on the Upper West Side. So I'd be wearing a chef's jacket when we were testing just to keep my clothes clean. And once in a while I'd have to run out to a grocery store to get, um, you know, some right. frise or something we didn't have for, for testing. And you could feel people, like, checking you out, you know, in your chef clothes. Yeah, you you were like, you could have been it was walking cool. a dog. You, you, you were a chick magnet in your chef it was, jacket. Well, I wouldn't go that far. But it was it was cool, you yeah. know. And, and But there was a time when you would not walk down the street in your chef uniform, yeah. literally, yeah. literally. Yeah. And, and that was something that, obviously, that during these years changed Dramatically. You talk about the U.S. Labor Department yes. actually ca- uh, designating chefs as domestic. domestics. Yes, service workers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. And by the way, that feeling that you talk about parents having still exists to this day in, uh, you know, Kenji Lopez Alt, who was yeah. at Serious Eats and has, you know, this incredible uh, best selling cookbook, yeah. Food Lab, yeah. went to MIT. Had a father who uh, taught at Harvard yeah. or Columbia or I think he used to go back and forth between the two institutions. And when he told his mother after he graduated from MIT with a degree in architecture that he was going to – that he wanted to cook and be a chef, his mother said, we paid for you to go to MIT so you could flip burgers at McDonald's. Yeah. So I mean, it's it, it's obviously it has persisted. Obviously, to much, many fewer cases. Yes. Even today, there's still. Yeah. Totally agree. Huni Kim, who has Donji and Hanjan restaurants here in New York, had been pre-med, and he said to this day he's got two very successful restaurants. He came up working for Daniel Balud and Masa and all these acclaimed chefs. He said to this day in the summer. If he comes out of his kitchen, you know, sweaty and his mom is in the dining room, she'll still say to him, you know, I raised a son to work in an air conditioned office. I raised a son to be a doctor or a lawyer. She's still not over it, you know. So the book is incredibly revealing without being gossipy or snarky. Thank you. Was that because you were friends with a lot of these people or that just wasn't interesting to you? I love that question. I wanted to write, to be honest, a much more salacious, revealing book. I I really, you know, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is a very serious book and really explains what happened in Hollywood. Yeah, but he pulls no punches. There is unbelievable detail. You're like, oh my God, how did he get these people to, to tell him this, right? And the citations are amazing. Like, if you go to the notes in that book, every quote, I mean, he was really anticipating probably lawsuits and whatever. It is so supported. Right. Now, this book, I really thought, you know, my book ends 20-something years ago. I really thought statute of limitations. Everyone's going to tell me these amazing wild stories. And they just didn't. Um, the, the, the line for me to be honest about it is just um, I had what I call a no outing policy. There's people in this book who were widely known to have done all kinds of stuff. If they themselves were not going to cop to it in our interview, I was not going to out them, you mm-hmm. know. And I've been through legal reads on other books. If I had three people on the record saying they did X, Y, and Z, I probably could have put it in. Why? I didn't see the point. 
I, I, it's, I didn't think specifics. I think it's very clear from the book that there was plenty of substance around. I think it's pretty clear from the book how hard the work is. I think it's uh, – I, I did – There was a lot of sex and walk-ins, but you didn't stuff. feel the need to elaborate. I didn't feel the need to be specific who was having sex in the walk-in. I just – I didn't. Now, if, if, if more people – had offered that up or, or or answered my questions, you know, very directly, I would have put it in. But, uh, you know, there's this book opens with Bruce Martyr, who I'd never met in my life, telling me about dropping acid in this van, you know, in Morocco. I'm very grateful to Bruce. I'm right. very, there's a lot of people who wouldn't have even told me that story. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of don't get it after this long. People were very guarded about that stuff. Not to be stereotypical, but they were way more guarded on the East Coast than, than in California. That's funny. I was actually offered marijuana at a couple of interviews in California. Always offered wine. Always. Yeah. I mean, the California interviews were. It was. I had. The, it was great going out there. I really felt like I got to know, especially L.A. pretty well. Yeah. So that's the reason. Got I just it. had no interest or stomach for outing people who look. I had a friend who wrote a book a few years ago, just full, chock-a-block with all this kind of stuff, and was getting angry phone calls from people like, you know, I have grandkids, you know, and you, I can't believe you said what I did in my office, you know, under the desk and all that, you know, and I, I don't want those phone calls. I, I you know, yeah. these people have, it's not, I don't, it's not what the book's about. I, I did want there to be more of that texture because I think it was a pretty wild time. Um, there's also to be honest about it. There's a there's a part of me that kind of respects and and this is a I don't want to phrase this wrong because we're at a very important moment in this industry and other industries. You know the reckoning or right. But there I'm not talking about that. But there is a part of it to me of you know kind of what happens in the kitchen stays in the kitchen. Yeah, my chef was doing a lot of coke. I'm not going to be the one who gives that to you. You know mm-hmm. I, he was working hard. He did what he had to do. Whatever. Yeah. I there's a part of me that grudgingly respects that and and uh, it's fine. I'm I'm not I, I the friends of mine who read the book early, one of the first things I said to them was, Did you feel like I wimped out on you know how much cocaine was around? And they said, No, I got it. I get that it was around. Yeah, you no, know? I, I actually think you did it really deftly. Thank it's you. It's funny because, you know, I am writing this book about serious eats as yeah. we were talking yeah. about. And one of the first things that I realized because when I was first writing I was doing a lot of score settling uh-huh. and then I was like nobody ever has heard of any of these people what's <laughs> the point it's not really well, the story yeah and also Frank Bruni said something to me about his memoir when he was on special sauce he said he vowed that the only person he would embarrass in his book was himself that's interesting. Well, there are people in here who probably are seeing things about themselves that they're not happy right. with. You know, but I did look, I get into the breakup between Wolfgang Puck and, and Patrick Tarai, who was his boss at a restaurant called Ma Maison. Um, it was a seminal power restaurant in Los Angeles. It was. And I believe that the shift of Wolfgang as an employee, a very unheralded employee there, to being the owner of his own place, Spago is the kind of the story of what happened in, in with American chefs, even though he was not from the United States. There is a lot of the headbutting in there. There's a lot of the headbutting between Michael McCarty and the original chef of Michael's, Ken Frank. You know, there's some stuff about how the extreme volume and pressure of the dining room 
affected Alain Sayak's kitchen at Le Cirque, right? There's some short... seminal French restaurant in New York. Yes, owned by Sergio Maccioni. Yeah, now Alain and I, I'm friendly with Alain and his wife Arlene, and and I'm very fond of them. There's some very unflattering detail in there. To me, I thought it was important. I thought it showed, you know, that to a generation of Americans who grew up kind of deifying the French, that they weren't these infallible right. people, that, you know, and ultimately there was an important change that happened when Daniel Balud took over that kitchen. There were things that there's a reason, the stuff that's in there that I think would be displeasing to some people, it's there for a reason. It's Got there it. because I think it makes a historical And it serves the point. narrative. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I netted out on Got some it. of this stuff. So, you know, you mentioned Wolfgang Puck and Patrick Karai. I think the reason you honed in on that relationship is that it represented a moment where the power was shifting in restaurants from restaurateurs to chefs. Would yeah. you say that's accurate? hundred percent. Yeah, and I feel like the owners didn't see it coming. It was like they were mugged, you know? Like, <laughs> it was like they were jumped in an alley. They didn't see it coming. Right, right, because, the, you know, the, the restaurateurs were the empresarios, They right? were the empresarios. They were the front the front guy. I mean, I They were literally the front of the house guys. They were guys. the front of the house. That was their money. They were the ones schmoozing the customers. And the chefs were these anonymous people in the back of the house who, who didn't come out. Um, who generally, I mean, now, you know, sometimes on a menu you'll even see sous chefs named. Right. Um, they weren't generally named. Um, they weren't generally known. And that all started to change, with, you know, in with, the late with, 70s. And, and you correctly say that it changed with Wolf. And it, what was interesting to me in reading the book was that Wolfgang Puck was reluctantly dragged to the front of the house. It wasn't like, I want to be a star. Most people I interviewed for the book will tell you that they, at that time, were getting into cooking simply because they loved cooking, right? They couldn't see the celebrity thing coming down the pike. They couldn't see the product lines and the cookbooks and the television shows. Jonathan Waxman, who I adore, I made that comment to him, and he said, you know, Andrew, that's manifestly untrue because we all had the example of the Nouvelle Cuisine chefs, the Paul Bocuse's of the world, who were, being, who were getting very famous in France, who were on the covers of magazines in France. I think Jonathan speaks more for himself on that front than for a lot of these people. But I did ask Wolfgang directly if he, because he came from Europe at that time, if he had the example of the Nouvelle Cuisine chefs. These are the people who broke away from traditional French cuisine into a, a much more personal style of cuisine, which is the beginnings of what we all take for granted now, of a chef having a, their own sort of voice or right. style. That was a new concept. And I asked Wolfgang if he saw the potential for celebrity in that and wanted that for himself. And he very convincingly to me said no. He said obviously he had seen it, saw what it did for those guys, but that it wasn't anything that was really a, a goal of his. Yeah, no, it's, that was yeah. clear. That was interesting to me. Yeah. The book goes into great detail about these markers in the evolution of chef culture in America. Yeah. What would you say were the key moments? What were the markers? Well, I, I will always point to Spago. The opening of Spago, to me, that Wolfgang, you know, there's a film producer named Marcia Nassiter in the book who ate once a week at, uh, at Ma Maison, where Wolfgang had been. And I said, what were your impressions of Wolfgang there? And she said, I didn't know there was a Wolfgang. Wow. And you go from that to Spago, where it's an open, no more hiding in the back, an open, what they called Barbara Lazaroff, his ex-wife who designed those restaurants, calls an exhibition kitchen. 
Right. Um, you know, he was on stage. Yeah, instantly. and now it's like we just got through with the Academy Awards. Yeah, and he's still Wolfgang, doing that. Yeah, he still Wolfgang does the cover. Yeah. one of the stars of the Academy Awards. Yeah. So to me, Spago, just the okay. fact of it, what it represented, uh, where the where the uh, chefs were positioned, that to me uh, was a huge thing. Uh, I would probably point to the arrival of Jonathan Waxman in New York City. And where he, a restaurant where called he, Jams that where he, he opened. Where, where he forced us to pay 20-some-odd dollars for really good... Chicken and fries. Chicken and fries. Yeah, in 1984. That's true. Okay. I had them. Now... I saved my pennies. What, to me, is interesting about that is, this is, again, taken for granted, but, you know, the way the book is written, right, there's a, there's a sort of what I call the primordial swamp intro that kind of talks about what was going on in the country and... Politically and culturally and all that. Then the first chapter proper is about Los Angeles. And then you turn the page at the end of that and suddenly you're in New York. And there's three chapters about different factions of New York City. Okay, And the reason for that is they were different worlds. People have a hard time understanding this today. There was very little coverage of chefs. There was very little coverage of restaurants. There was very little cross-pollination between the coasts. And... I'm actually going to go back on what I just said. I'm going to take a half step back from jams. In 1983, and I have a whole chapter about this in the book, there was a dinner in the, at the Stamper Court Hotel. Oh, right, which was basically an all-star chef's dinner. Well, it's the kind of thing. There's probably three of these dinners happening in yes. the U.S. tonight. It had never happened before. Right. It was, I think, eight chefs, uh, Mark Miller, Jeremiah Tower, Alice Waters, Jonathan Waxman, Paul Prudhomme from New Orleans, Larry Forgione from New York City, Jimmy Schmidt and Brad Ogden from the Midwest, and they did a collaborative dinner to show off what was happening in American restaurants at the time, and all the wines were American. Michael McCarty of Michael's Restaurant, this was his sort of brainchild, and a lot of the chefs who came to that dinner, first of all, most of those people had never met. Now, that today would be unimaginable right. for these chefs of this prominence. Right. Some of them had not heard of each other until they saw the wow. roster for the dinner. And these were people who, in their own localities, were famous. And they realized that they were part of something big. Bigger than themselves, Yes, certainly. and something national. And that was a moment at which they all started seeing... Their destiny shifts. So there were people like Jeremiah Tower who had been drifting a little since he left Chez Panisse, who was already working on what became his masterpiece, Stars. Jimmy Schmidt, who came to that dinner from the, the Rattlesnake from the Club. Rattle, well, became the Rattlesnake Club. He came from uh, the Ch London Chop House in Detroit, in Detroit right. and ended up partnering with McCarty on the Rattlesnake Club. Jonathan Waxman sees what's going on, decides it's time to leave Michael and strike out on his own, comes to New York and does jams. jams. And on and on and on and on. So the, yeah, so, so there was that a was a huge real emancipatory, it, but also an emancipatory moment—a moment when those people saw there's strength in our numbers. We can be calling the shots. We can be owning our own restaurants. So that was big. You know, the other moment I'd point to, and it's a slight spoiler, but hopefully not too bad. Toward the ends of the end of the book, there is a conflict between the gathering chef culture, which I to me was exemplified by Blue Ribbon, which right. was the late the, night. The that's hang. Where, that's the where, ultimate hang. If you were a chef in New York City in the early 90s and you got off work and you wanted to hang with other chefs or cooks, you went to Blue Ribbon on Sullivan Street, the original And you Blue were Ribbon. wired from service. Yes. So you couldn't go home and go to sleep. No. 
No, this is a, we could have a whole right. thing about yeah. how misunderstood yeah. the party culture yeah, yeah. is. A lot of these people just can't, you know, you're so, you've been working flat out for five, six hours. You don't know how to come down yeah. from that. That's it's like what, actors in Broadway plays. They can't go to sleep at 11 it's o'clock. It's like that. It's, a, it's like why at the end of a marathon you see people who just ran 26 miles still jogging in circles, <laughs> right. you know, trying right. to come down. Um, but that aside, those people were all there every night hanging out with each other. And hovering on the horizon was the Food Network, right? And I think the chefs who were at Blue Ribbon, this is an amazing moment in time. You had Bobby Flay. You had Mario Batali. You had David Burke. You had Daniel Belud. You had John George von Richten. All of these people who all have empires now, they had all just come from cooking on the line or expediting in their own restaurant, this was when chefs were in their restaurants right. five, six nights a right. week, and I don't say that in a punitive way, just what, it's the way it was. They had one restaurant, they had just come from working there, and they wanted a couple of beers with their with their colleagues. You know, Batali, it's weird to reference him now, because he's basically right. a non-entity now. But Mario, uh, you know, referred to it as the Knights of the Round Table, right. the vibe in that place. Right. And, and But hovering in the background was the Food Network, yeah. right? And and I would argue that's what really started to change the industry. And you you know you you fast forward to five six years later, and um, that kind of scene with those people it's was unimaginable. Yeah. It, it, and I th- so I think those people thought they were going to spend the rest of their lives like that. And I think it was actually the end of something. Yeah. I think it was the end of what I describe in this book. I think it was the end of that time period. Yeah. And another thing was about to take over. Yeah. yeah. So th- those are the moments I would point to. Let's talk about woman chefs for a second. Yeah. You interviewed many women yeah. in the book. Yeah. You've written books with Michelle Bernstein, this yeah. great chef from Miami, who is a remarkable woman in, mm-hmm. in many ways. Yeah. Um, what did you find out about the treatment of women in the kitchen? You talk about a coastal divide in that regard. Yeah. And talk about it now because it's pretty relevant given everything that's going on. Well, I'll take the last thing you said first. Okay. okay? I will maintain until somebody proves otherwise to me this moment that we're in right now you know whatever you want to call it the reckoning you know the me too me too movement not just about the restaurant industry it's about every industry really i believe that this moment is much more of an education for what i'll call well-behaved men than it is for anybody else i i once these stories started breaking and i started having open discussions about it there is no woman I know who is surprised. There's no woman I know who either didn't have a horror story or more herself or close, many close friends did. I was shocked. For all the time I've spent in kitchens, I'd never seen any of this behavior. When the best story broke, when the Mario story broke, I'd never seen any of this. And the joke I made, I said, it must be like Hogan's Heroes. Like when they saw me coming, you know, they put the bunk down over the tunnel and they turned it's, the credenza it's around. It's totally true. As journalists, I never saw any of it. None, none of us did. I remember, yeah. Danielle, I would walk into the kitchen because I was friends with Alex Lee, the chef sure. of cuisine at Danielle. Yeah. I used to play squash with him. Yeah. And I would walk into the kitchen to say hello. Yeah. Danielle would be screaming yeah, yeah. at at everyone in the kitchen, yeah, why yeah, don't yeah. you go cook at a Greek coffee yeah, shop? Yeah. And then he turned to me, Ed! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, and I'm sure you've had so many of those moments. So yeah. I, I, I think you're absolutely right about in terms of women and what you saw. Or what, even her disgust. Right. Or, I mean, I would hear vague references. So-and-so's a pig. Like, I would hear right. stuff like that. I didn't know what it meant. Right. You know, criminal behavior or right. borderline criminal behavior. So... 
when it came to the book, this is what I, I did not learn, and then I'll talk to the other issue, just the, the kitchen culture. You know, I am always wary of any question that puts anybody in a cubbyhole, okay? And I, people who listen to my podcast know I always say the same thing. I don't believe anyone gets into cooking to be a woman chef or a gay chef or a black chef or a minor. You, you just want to be a chef, right? If you try to put yourself as someone who empathizes with people you're interviewing, you know, I think there are people who are happy to be uh, spokespeople for their community, and that's fine. But I think by, I've had people sit down for interviews with me on my podcast, and before we start, say, just before we start, can we just talk about cooking? Like, I don't want to talk about women's stuff. Women chefs said that, have said this to me. I totally get that. This book, because of the time period that it took place in, I did always ask with, you know, some kind of qualifier or apology, what was it like to be a woman in the kitchen in this era? Okay? Now... People would say to me, um, it was really hard to get a, into a kitchen. Mary Sue Milliken has this story. You know, the, oh, the, the guy. A great chef in Los Angeles. Yeah, at Border Grill and other restaurants. But when she was trying to get a job in Chicago, you know, as a young cook, you know, the chef said, oh, you're too pretty. You'll drive my staff crazy. And he offered her a job as a hat check girl, right? Lots of women told me that as women, they could only be garde manger, meaning, you know, cold preps and salads or pastry. That was a very traditional thing in European structured kitchens, they encountered that. A lot of women chefs and also there was a phrase that came up more than once. Several gay chefs had said to me some version of they had to prove themselves twice. Like first they had to prove themselves as Americans and then they had to prove themselves as a, as a woman or as a homosexual. And then they, you know, once they did that, they were accepted. But what's fascinating to me is nobody. There's two stories that would even be in the category of sexual harassment or assault, and they're very minor. One of them's verbal, and one of them is some Helen Chardak, who's uh, ex-wife of Alfred Portali, who was a terrific chef in her own right, said, you know, when she was at the Culinary Institute, you wouldn't go into the walk-in alone. Yeah. yeah. And that's it. That's it. And I, to be honest, but when I, this book was put to bed when these stories broke, I didn't know to ask something more pointed than that. And I've, I've since gone back to some of these people and, I, you know, and they've said, look, I, it, was part of, it was unfortunately part of being a woman at that time. It's something I really don't want to talk about. It's something I don't want to talk about in the context of my career. You know, I'd rather tell you about my triumphs and yeah. what I did. Yeah. So I, I wish that the timing were a little different um, because I would have very, uh, not happily, but I would have had no hesitation to explore it. And this isn't a plug, but I will tell you, Alison Robicelli, uh, who's very outspoken on this yes. topic, she and I are co-producing a special episode of my podcast. We're going to do four or five complimentary interviews with people, journalists and women cooks and chefs on this topic. That's so, great. But I didn't, I honestly, I had a blind spot. Yeah. I had a blind spot. So now it's time for the special sauce, all you can answer buffet, Andrew. So who's at your last supper no family allowed, and in your case, only one chef allowed. How many people am I allowed? You're allowed five. At my last supper? Yeah. Living or dead? Yeah, living or dead. Uh, people you think would be great to break bread with? Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Okay. Uh, John Cheever. John Cheever. Woo! Elvis Costello. Okay, and you you got to have a woman. I'm about to. Okay. I'm about to. Dorothy Parker. <laughs> That's an awesome table. All right, so um, what are you eating? 
can chefs that I like have cooked the meal? Yeah. So I'm eating uh, dishes that represent different times in my life in the chef world. Okay. So I'm having Alfred Portali's farfalle with prosciutto and oh. pea leaves. Okay. And uh, uh, I'm having Tom Valenti's braised lamb shank. Which is one of my favorite all-time dishes. And on from there. Okay. And um, do you have a guilty pleasure? Food? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up eating Wendy's. I mean, I I eat all kinds of garbage. I eat, I love. There's nothing. There are nights when presented with the choice between a Big Mac, uh, fries, and one of those disgusting Sundays from McDonald's, I would pick that over anything else on planet Earth. <laughs> That's awesome. So That's, I'm not joking. There are nights where that would be heaven. Um, who do you imagine you could acquire the most wisdom from at a one-on-one lunch? Like a non-chef, living or dead, like just someone who, like, if I could spend two hours with it's gonna this happen. person, it's going to happen. Really? Yeah. I had a mentor when I was in the film business named Marsha Nassiter. Marsha was the first ever female vice president of a major studio. She worked for Mike Metavoy in the '70s at United Artists. She's now 91. She's unbelievably vital. She is an amazing person. Someone just made a documentary about her called A Classy Broad. And she threw me a little reception for my book when I was in L.A. Nice. last week. She was horrified that uh, nobody was throwing me a party. She threw me a party. And we are having dinner at Maud Restaurant, which is one of Curtis Stone's restaurants. Uh, Justin Hilbert came and made some of the canapes for my little reception. And she and Justin adored each other. It was the cutest thing ever. And Marsha and I are going to Maud, And I've already decided that I'm going to tap as much wisdom from Marsha Nassiter, who's been right there in my life for 30 years, wow. but who I have never just kind of picked her brain about life and all that. And, and she probably doesn't listen to the podcast, so she <laughs> this won't she won't be able to prepare for that having I don't think she'll hear this. Awesome. But I have when we made the dinner date, I said, I'm gonna take advantage of my three hours with Marsha at this tasting dinner. <laughs> Perfect. It's been declared Andrew Friedman Day all over the world. What's happening on that day? Um, all the TVs in the world. It's my birthday, which always takes place during Wimbledon. Okay. Every television in the world is tuned to Wimbledon. Okay. Everybody tweeting is tweeting about Wimbledon. Okay. And this happened years ago. Elvis Costello was playing a concert that night, so I watched <laughs> Wimbledon all day. And then I went to an Elvis Costello concert. That's so awesome. Elvis Costello is playing a concert televised around the world. <laughs> That's so great. And uh, he'll end with uh, Just About Glad, which is my favorite Elvis Costello song. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this was sharing great. your special sauce with us, Andrew. Friedman, Serious Eaters, do check out Andrew's book, Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, and also his blog, Tokeland, and his podcast, Andrew Talks to Chefs. I do detect a certain through line in your work. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> we'll see you next time, Serious Eaters. This episode of Special Sauce is brought to you by U.S. Bank. If you're anything like me, you're thinking about food all the time. One day I'm craving Texas barbecue, the next day it's cast iron skillet fried chicken. Wouldn't it be great to earn rewards on everything you crave, whether it's dishes from your favorite restaurant or food you make at home? 
or takeout. I do love takeout, whether it's great pizza from Mama's 2 or roast pork egg foo young sauce on the side, please, from La Dinestia, or just some spicy tuna rolls from Sushi Yasaka. Well, now you can with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. With this credit card, you can earn four times points on dining, takeout, and restaurant delivery, and two times points at grocery stores, grocery delivery, gas stations, EV charging stations, and streaming services. Plus, discover how you can earn 20,000 bonus points, a $200 value, at usbank.com slash altitude go when you apply. Live every day your way with the Altitude Go card. Learn more at usbank.com slash altitude go. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. From P. 